And let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us by your Spirit tonight as we examine your Word. We thank you for it. Give us discernment to know the truth as you have revealed it. Amen. Well, let me add my welcome to Andy's. Uh, it's great to see you all here tonight. My name is Angus, and I feel incredibly underqualified to talk to you about Christianity and science tonight. I am a biology graduate of the University of Edinburgh, where I majored in zoology. I've been a Christian for nine years. Um, I've just completed a ministry training program in this church, and I'm about to start a job as a freshwater ecologist for an environmental consultancy. And yet, I was terrified and have been terrified since I was given this topic, because it seems as though the debate between Christianity and science has raged for a hundred years or more, with many of the greatest minds of the centuries picking a side and getting involved. And the question seems to be Christianity or science. Let's see how that argument goes and where that argument comes from, starting in Job. Um, let me give you the context of Job by reading from chapter one. It'll really help you to try and follow along in your Bibles as we go through tonight. This is from Job chapter one, it's on the screen. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Asked Satan. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land, but now stretch out your hand and strike him Strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan argued, Job only worships God because he was having an easy, prosperous life, and if he had nothing, he would turn away. And God says, go ahead, try it. In the next few paragraphs, Satan has taken everything from Job, his family, his herds and his livestock, his household. Job sinks into a deep, deep depression, which David Robertson spoke about last week as we looked at Christianity and suffering. You can catch up on that uh, on YouTube if you missed it. But by the time we get to Job 38, which uh, Andy's read for us, Job's friends have been trying to get to grips with why this has happened. Maybe God's punishing him for some sin. Maybe he's just unlucky. They're trying to encourage him to change his mind. And nothing really works until finally God appears and speaks to his servant Job. God does so speaking to Job with these rhetorical questions, starting with, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation in verse four? And he goes on in the rest of the chapter to touch on the creation of the earth, the seas and everything in them, reminding Job he alone is sovereign, the creator of all things. So with these questions, who shut up the sea behind doors in verse eight? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm in verse 25? Who gives the ibis wisdom or the cockerel understanding in verse 29? The answer that Job should give is God. And for centuries and centuries, the leading scientific minds would have given the same answer. God made all these things, animated them, gave them breath, organizes them and orders them. After all, the very first verse in the Bible tells us, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. 
But yet, if you ask these questions today, though, it seems like the tone has changed. Of course, Job would say God, because as a citizen of an ancient civilization, he knew nothing of the science we have today. Today, rather than God, the dominating view is that natural processes and laws, including gravity, thermodynamics, entropy, natural selection, and evolution, give a full and infallible suite of answers to these questions and more. And so with all these scientific explanations sitting neatly in order, scientists like Richard Dawkins relegate the Christian worldview to myths and legends, fiction-based faith, bedtime stories for people afraid of the dark. The way science is done today flies the flag of scientism, the idea that science, properly done, is the only way to know truth about the universe. And this is especially true of the way science is taught. On the 18th of September, 2018, a fresh-faced and floppy-haired Angus sat in his very first university lecture in the mandatory first-year biology course, The Origin and Diversity of Life. The blurb for the course should be up on the screen. My lecturer starts by asking the question, where did life begin? And I, testing the water slightly, turned to the girl next to me and suggested Genesis chapter 1. And she gasped, and her Perthshire accent asked me, so you don't believe any of this then? We'll come back to that later, but the professor's next words were, now that we've set the creation myths aside, life probably began about a million years ago, a billion years ago even, at the bottom of the ocean. And so my education continued to denying the creator and his purpose, his intentions, at every opportunity, words like random and directionless and arbitrary and chance were common. So how has science gone from being a discipline dominated by religious people? After all, genetics was discovered by a monk. The guy who proposed the Big Bang Theory was a Catholic priest, and Isaac Newton spent more time studying the Bible than studying physics. From there to one of the most Christ-hostile environments in the Western world. Well, I think it comes down to the scientific answers to those questions in Job 38. See, as science progresses and the gaps start getting filled in, the argument goes, we don't need religion anymore because science better explains these things. So here we are. On one side, Christians say everything can be explained by God, while scientists say everything can be explained by science. And of course, science has the upper hand because Science has evidence and facts, while in religion's corner, God is supported only by faith. That's not scientific proof, is it? And so to really prove the dominance of science over Christianity, the scientists go for the jugular, the origin of the universe. If you can show there's a scientific explanation for that, you blow Christianity out of the water, right? So indeed, the Christians can talk about how an uncreated God created all things. Meanwhile, Stephen Hawking theorizes the self-creating universe. Here's what he had to say. Because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. And this rocked the world. Headlines like, Stephen Hawking explains the origin of the universe. Bingo, we've yanked the rug out from under their feet. There's lies on page one of their book, and science seems to triumph. So in opposition to the cold, hard facts of science, 
The left side of this slide makes up part of what Dawkins calls the God delusion, which all comes down to this, faith or scientific proof. Faith is believing what you cannot see, but science is believing what you can see. Faith is hoping for something. Science is proving something. Science is testable and reliable, whereas faith relies on miracles and experience and opinion. Faith is childish, and science has grown up. You start to see how visceral the argument gets, and almost by mocking religious belief in the face of the facts, you're bullied into taking their side. But I think this is where we have to tread very, very carefully, making a distinction between scientific fact and pithy belief. You see, all of science, everything we know from science, rests on proving or disproving things by the scientific method, four-step process. Firstly, you come up with an observation or a question. Second, you formulate a hypothesis that you can test with experiments. Third, you do those experiments, and based on their results, fourthly and finally, you can accept or reject your hypothesis. This is how all good science is done, and according to scientism, that is the only way to know truth and acquire knowledge. But can you prove that? Can we do experiments that show that the scientific method is the only way to acquire knowledge? No. The supremacy of the scientific method, the method on which all of science lies, is not a scientific fact. It's a philosophical statement of belief. Scientists believe and have faith in the scientific method. They, I'm going to say we because I'm a scientist too, we believe that the scientific method is the means for gaining knowledge and it's the right way to proceed and we trust it to do what we believe it can do. So science also requires faith rather than scientific proof. John Lennox points this out brilliantly in his book, Can Science Explain Everything?, which I thoroughly recommend. And there he also provides a brilliant distinction between a scientific statement and the statement of a scientist. You remember Hawking's theory of the self-creating universe? He didn't prove that. He didn't do any experiments to show it. He only said so and hypothesized so. It's not a scientific fact. It's just what some scientists believe. You see, scientific thought in the 21st century is doing an incredibly well-concealed amount of mental gymnastics to create a suite of answers that explain everything. But the truth is, there are many, many questions that science cannot answer, and ones that I imagine may never be forthcoming. Not only the presence of consciousness, how can matter and atoms and meat think and why do humans seem to have an ingrained, universal sense of morality? And potentially the most difficult question of all, how do we explain that feeling deep down inside that says, surely this isn't all there is? Surely there's more to life than what we see in front of us. I mean, don't we feel in ourselves that there's something non-scientific about our experience? And there appears to be some questions that science just cannot answer. But according to the anti-religious scientism, one side of this slide is a set of myths and legends that keep the kids happy and help you sleep at night, and the other is the cold, hard 
truth. But when you step back and look at it the way that we have, you realize that the two are actually remarkably similar worldviews. So what is the difference between these two sides? If they're that similar, how do we know which is right and which is wrong? Well, here we have to address Mr. Dawkins again and his jibe that when one person suffers from a delusion, it's called insanity, but when many people suffer from a delusion, it's called religion. He postulates that religious belief in some supernatural God is completely contrary to the evidence. But it's Dawkins who is deluded, because that's exactly what the Bible is. It's evidence. Turn again to John chapter 20 that Stefan read for us earlier. John, Jesus' closest disciple and eyewitness of everything he writes about, writes this from verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, the Bible is a collection of 66 books that all point in one direction. They point to Jesus of Nazareth, and they reveal him to be the Messiah, the Son of God, as John 20, 31 says. Christians don't believe in this God based on whimsy and hope and wishful thinking, but on truth, on real truth. Because among these 66 books are four that collate eyewitness accounts of this man, Jesus. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you've never even heard of those, there are copies of Mark's Gospel in the foyer outside. You're free to take one and have a look for yourself. Much of the rest of the New Testament is made up of letters written by people who met him, who knew him, who followed him, who loved him, who died for him. All of the Old Testament alludes to a coming king, and many of those books prophesy with astonishing detail and accuracy his life, death, and resurrection hundreds of years before he was born. If this is the point where you check out, I don't know if I can believe what the Bible says, this book here, Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams, is on the bookstore on your way out. Do have a look, because it really does come down to this. If we accept the testimony of the Gospels as true, everything else falls into place. If Jesus of Nazareth really is who the Bible says he is, suddenly the search for truth is ended. Because he says in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. If he is who he says he is, then that thing that gave origin to the universe is not a faceless force or an invisible law like gravity. It's a person. It's him. Just as John describes in chapter one, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Through him, all things were made. The word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. If Jesus is who he says he is, it's obvious how we answer the questions that God asks in Job 38. It's all Jesus. Here come the answers. And you'll see Jesus answers 
all of them. The answer to that last question, who gives understanding? In Colossians 2, Paul writes that in Christ is all wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge, again, not just faith and hope and belief. Knowledge. And if he is who he says he is, then the door to salvation is open. I hope if there are any people in the room tonight or watching online who don't know Jesus, I hope you haven't switched off because this is the most important part. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? What does it mean for Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life? What does it mean for him to be the creator? I'm gonna stop saying if because it's true. Because Jesus is all these things, John 20 tells us, by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Jesus can give us reconciliation with God because he is God. And we need reconciliation because we fail to keep his law. We don't naturally live lives that honor him. And instead, we live in a way that puts something else on the throne in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, whether that's ourselves, our own satisfaction, our own standing with others, our identity, whether it's money or sex or power, whatever it is, that kind of lifestyle is what the Bible calls sin, and it cannot coexist with a holy God. Because Jesus is the way, he provides the means for us to become clean by the forgiveness of our sins and salvation from the wages of sin, which is death. We can be saved from death, permanent, eternal death and separation from God because Jesus died in our place, taking the punishment on, on himself on the cross. And because Jesus is the life, by believing in him, you may have life in his name, eternal life in heaven with him. Because Jesus is the creator, we know that this has been the plan since the beginning. Jesus isn't a, a, an, an actor, a piece in the machine, responding and reacting, but the creator, the sustainer and organizer of all things in sovereign control. Receiving this promised life is as easy as responding to God the way Job does. In Job 40, I know we're jumping around a lot tonight, but stay with me. Job 40 Job says to God in verse 4, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? When we realize our sin and come to this holy God, that has to be our response. I am unworthy. Over the page in Job chapter 42, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Putting trust in God to be who he says he is and to do what he says he can do. Job doesn't say, I hope you can do all things or I wish you could do all things or I would like to believe you can do all things. Job says, I know you can do all things. Finally, in verse five, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When the eyes of a sinner are set upon Jesus, upon God. Repentance is the response. 
turning away from the life that you live that rejects God and turning to him instead. If you don't know Jesus today, please, please, please think about that. Stick around for a cup of tea and coffee afterwards. Ask somebody who's brought you. Ask me, I'll be at the doors. Ask Andy, who led. Send us an email, whatever, but don't let it go because it's true. Okay, back to science. If you think science has the high ground over Christianity, I hope you can see that's a little more subjective than it seems. And I hope I've convinced you to think a bit more about this, to see all the amazing things that Jesus truly offers and that can be received by belief in him. Again, a copy of Mark's gospel at the door on your way out if you want to read more. But a question still remains, because I know a lot of people personally for whom this is the one hang up. I can't be a Christian because the science makes so much sense. I didn't really want to talk to you about Christianity or science tonight, but Christianity and science. At last, I can answer the question, what does the Bible say about science? And the answer is not a lot. At least it says very little about the kind of science a 21st century reader would recognize. But there are certainly elements of the scientific method, right? Believing and accepting based on evidence in the Gospels. Let's go back into John chapter 20 and we'll see that. Doubting Thomas says, like a true scientist, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And he sees Jesus and he believes like thousands of others who believe the good news about Jesus, not seeing Jesus in the flesh, but believing the evidence of the eyewitness accounts and the testimony of the apostles as the gospel spread from Jerusalem around the Mediterranean world. Even way back in the Old Testament, there's a little hint of science, a little scientific experiment almost in Daniel chapter one. I don't have time for that tonight. You'll have to read it yourself. But going back to my flabbergasted classmate, Jenna from uni, who couldn't imagine a Christian studying science. Psalm 111 verse two says this, great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. So if you delight in God's work as a Christian and God's work is creation as well as his revelation of himself throughout time recorded in the Bible for us, the work of salvation completed through Jesus Christ. If you delight in these works of God, you're encouraged to ponder these works of his. And we can do that. We can ask these fascinating scientific questions of how things work and interact in the confidence that we have the answer to the why question. Why did all this start? Why is anything here? That is the big one that science cannot will not ever answer why, but we know why. Because God willed it. I have to recommend this book, The New Creationism by Paul Gardner, building scientific theories on a biblical foundation. See in here he gives a compelling criticism of the existing, some of the existing scientific theories, because a theory is a theory and not necessarily the right answer. He criticizes 
things like carbon dating. He explores the strange occurrence of aquatic fossils on mountaintops by looking at the flood that covered the whole earth, showing evidence of the flood in the geological rock column, suggesting a tectonic mechanism that could, by God's design, have caused the sea levels to rise, and much more. I can't recommend this enough. So Christians, let's get excited about how science displays the Lord to us. Because isn't it wonderful that he created us with minds that can see it and study it and appreciate it and understand it. When we read, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord in Psalm 19, let's do some stargazing and consider how the nuclear fusion reactions happening in the sun 150 million kilometers away at five and a half thousand degrees, all that energy crosses all that space to reach us at a toasty six to 13 degrees, allows plants to photosynthesize, gives us light and heat so that we can see what's going on. When Jesus reminds us all the hairs of your head are numbered in Matthew chapter 10, let's be amazed at the complexity of the human body, much of which science doesn't understand still, and be comforted that God knows every single detail for every single one of us. And if the physicists theorize a big bang, how else would somebody who doesn't know God try to describe the evidence, which seems to suggest there is a single moment when everything just started, where light comes out of nowhere? Let's be confident looking at things like that, knowing that we have an explanation of the moment when God said, let there be light. As Ashley was describing this morning, if you were here, let's look at all the complexity and diversity of the plants and animals and fungi and microbes. That's basically what my job is going to be. Um, looking at all that diversity around us, below us, above us, in us, um, and be stunned by the imagination and intricate design of the Creator. As part of that, let's lament humankind's damage to the natural world. And when environments change, let's marvel at how God has given all life the means to adapt and change and survive by the natural selection of favorable traits passed down by descent with modification. I am tiptoeing here because I know this is potentially the difficult one, but stick with me. Here on the screen, I want to show you some results from a study by two Belgian scientists in 2006, they compared the song patterns of great tits living in urban and forest environments in Europe and showed that there's a difference. This graph on the left is the woodland and urban on the right, and the minimum frequency at which the birds sing in the urban environments is higher than in the woodlands. Because in urban environments, traffic noise interferes with their songs. So they're singing different songs. This helps the birds in urban centers be heard over traffic noise. So there's been a change in this trait between these two populations, they're diverging over time to better adapt them to the environments that they are in. And that is all evolution is, a change in a trait over time. Evidence suggests pretty undoubtedly that species are changing to adapt to the natural environment. And I say, praise God that he gave them the ability to do so. And just because we believe that, or might believe that, doesn't mean we have to go the full Monty and believe in the whole modern theory of evolution, 
which is made up of a lot more guesswork and imagination and supposition and has way more gaps in it than they want you to believe. You can believe that evolution is happening today, that God gave species a way to survive hostile environments without believing that humans came from monkeys, rather still standing on the firm biblical foundation that God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. God creates a variety of animals, not just one that gives rise to all of them. And God says, let us make mankind in our image, distinguishing humanity from the rest of his creation. We can do science, we can think scientifically, we can explore the natural world around us while resting firmly in that one fundamental truth from the first page of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I hope I've shown a few things tonight. Firstly, that science doesn't have a high ground over Christianity unless it's defined within itself, which makes the argument obsolete. Christians can look at God's creation and study it, marveling at the knowledge that science provides and letting us take even more delight in our creator. We can synthesize rigorous scientific theories with the unaltered, inerrant, God-breathed creation account and the rest of the biblical testimony. And ultimately, my encouragement to you all is to be good scientists, to examine the evidence and be convinced by what it shows. And there is no more important piece of evidence for us to consider again and again be convinced of again and again and respond to again and again than the fact of who Jesus of Nazareth is, the Son of God. Because these things were written so that you may believe. And by believing, based on the evidence, have life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth and reliability of your Bible. Thank you for preserving it through the centuries for us to be able to know you, to know your son, Jesus, and to have life in his name. I pray for anyone who still isn't sure of this, that you would keep prompting them to ask questions and investigate the evidence for themselves. And I pray that we would all see evidence of your hand and rejoice in your power and wonder as we observe your creation all around us from nebulas to nematodes and everything in between. We praise you, Lord. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a wonderful song. Um, Christianity doesn't strive to have all the answers sometimes. Sometimes it's just about knowing the one who does. In this song, we sing about some of the parts of God's plan and design that we may never understand and respond with what we can be certain of from the scriptures to strengthen our faith and encourage our hearts. So let's stand and sing.